Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a side of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Hello, and welcome to the I'd Like to Add You to My Professional Network edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week, which this week means the news that Microsoft has decided to drop $26 billion on acquiring a social network, because who doesn't want a social network these days. Um, there's a bunch of sort of non-Microsoft, non-social networky aspects to this deal, which is why we're devoting the whole episode to it. It's going to be fun. We are joined as ever by Kathy O'Neill, the blogger and data scientist at mathbabe.org. Hello, everyone. Hello, Kathy. And we are joined by... Um, the Money Box columnist at Slate, Jordan Weissman. Hello, Felix. But most importantly, and one of the main reasons, in fact, the main reason why this is the podcast that you need to listen to at least three or four times because it's that awesome, is that we are joined by the one and only Paul Ford. Hello, Paul. Sorry, everybody. Um, Paul Ford is the... <laughs> Paul Ford is the, is the most intelligent person in the world. He has an agency which does something so complicated that I can't even begin to um, describe it called Postlight. It's a product studio in New York City. We build big, beautiful digital things. So, yeah, this is like my my knowledge of um, like, like digital apps. Apps. Is, is, is basically it. I start losing comprehension the minute that somebody starts using the word product. Oh, it's horrible, isn't it? It's a horrible word. But it it's, is it's, a horrible it's, word. It has, unfortunately, it carries certain signifiers in the industry. We can't, we can't be without. <laughs> you can't, like, exonate that word. Well, because I want to do is just be like, I, m I make things for you on computer. Like, that's what I want to say. But yeah, that, yeah. that doesn't actually, you don't give a guy a lot of money to do that. Is it software or is it also hardware? No, we don't do hardware yet. Um, it's named Postlight just in case screens go away and it needs to be Postlight. But for right now, <laughs> most, of, ahead. most of the things we do, I like to future-proof a little bit. Most of the things we do, we'll build, you come to us and you say, I need this really like complex, weird app. I have this ugly web problem from 10 years ago and there's 50 people working on it and oh my God, what do I do? We're, yeah. we're those guys. So it's kind of like therapy too. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, so, that, that so the reason, level. so there are two main reasons. Is my ad over? The, um, Keep going. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm staying on subject here. There are two main reasons I wanted Paul to join. The first main reason I wanted Paul to join us this week was because he wrote an absolutely wonderful medium post about all of the sort of dystopian future that this deal portends. Um, but the second reason is that in a previous existence, he actually used to be a management consultant. So he can. Oh, I'm back to it. He can he can he can um, help to translate some of the um, weird words like products and enterprise, which mm -hmm. we don't really know what they mean, into English for us. 
Um, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about um, capital stacks and capital structures. We're going to talk about insider trading. You have no idea. We have all manner of stuff. But Paul, um, first, you, I suppose you really ought to tell us what we're talking about here. So last when, – when was it? Was it Monday? Monday morning we all woke up to the news, the very surprising news that – Microsoft, which is a, a little company people might have heard of that makes things like Microsoft Office, went ahead and bought LinkedIn, the large profess, professional social network that globally connects people into one giant professional hairball and lets them sort of recruit each other. So my first reaction to this was like to to like delete my LinkedIn account, but then I realized I'd already deleted my LinkedIn account. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even protest. I, I deleted it like a month prior because I was just so sick of all the spam I got. Well, this is the tricky thing with LinkedIn is that it's a really uh, it's a really popular product and and also just a, a really terrible product, and so um, it's confusing in that regard. Like most things that are that big work. And like this one, like the menus don't always work. I have this one guy in my LinkedIn account. Uh, his name is Andrew Madden. Andrew, if you ever listen to this, I know you work at Google and I know you asked to be my friend and I hope you don't take this personally. I've clicked, I would like to accept your invitation 400 times. <laughs> He's always there. He's always – I keep talking about it as I do different media things, kind of hoping that maybe someday – because there's no <laughs> there's no report the bug, right? Um, and so uh, – and, and I've actually been invited to go over to LinkedIn after I wrote this. So I'm, I'm going to bring that up too. So I'm going to work this out. You're going to become friends with Andrew Madden if it's the last thing you do. I just sort of feel like so when somebody asks, I say – do you guys say yes? Well, you're off. Kathy. You're yeah, done. but I used to say yes. That I, was a mistake, I, obviously. I only get exceptionally strange invites. Yeah. Like exceptionally – like really not even it, – <laughs> it's not even obvious like how they're related to what I do or write. I assume often they may just be like Russian-created bots that are somehow trying to spy on the U.S. No, There's definitely <laughs> are bots. Yeah. There are definitely I, bots. I almost always say no because I feel that the my, – my life is spent juggling – Various messaging feeds. There's the text message. There's the email. There's the Slack. There's the DMs on Twitter. There's all the rest of it. And the last thing I need in this world is the worst messaging product in the world, which is LinkedIn Mail. It is a pretty. It's pretty brutal that name. The way it gets like that was a brand that should never have been extended. Like it's <laughs> you link in with no, no, you linked no. Uh, so they even screwed. Like at least with Google, we're all like, oh, you Google that person, and then they have to worry about their trademark. Like that's never happening with LinkedIn. No right. one is. No one is like. Hey, there's no LinkedIn me. It should be a generic term by now, but it's absolutely not because it's so unusable. But you say yes to people you don't even know. It's just such a bad scenario because I feel terrible. But then it's like we offer consulting services in Guam, and you're just like, oh god, I, and I, I don't know what to say. And you kind of just want to be like, not now. But then you, the problem with LinkedIn is no conversation can ever end because people are pretty aggressive and assertive because the whole thing is just set up to sell you stuff, right? Like you're in a position where you're going to be marketed to. Well, let's know? let's talk about the the acquisition a little bit because. You know, you say that it's it's for marketing, but I, I I until this moment, until Monday, I thought of LinkedIn and the reason I was willing to be part of it um, until recently was that it was like, well, maybe an opportunity to actually get a job. Like it aligned with my goals, which is like I always want to have my options open. And that's where most of LinkedIn's revenue comes from is that they pay, that recruiters pay them to help them find employee, new employees. Right. Is that true? I have no yes, idea what that's the majority is. Most of their is. revenue okay. comes from headhunters, basically. And okay. I was like, okay, yeah, you should headhunt me and offer me a really good job. But now I'm like, I don't want Microsoft to market to me. That's bullshit. That is not what I signed up for. Well, I mean, you know, it's, stuff will happen. It happens. They're marketing you right now. Yeah, but I don't, I don't want to volunteer my email space to that, is what I'm saying. But where was Slate created? <laughs> a long time that's, ago. That's many many moons ago. So we're literally you're saying Slate was created in Microsoft? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. We, but I get paid. <laughs> it was originally on that campus. Look, yeah. I don't know my history. No, no, no. But I do know where my paycheck comes from. Like the point is, I'm getting paid for this. Whereas, like LinkedIn is free. Like I'm volunteering my time to LinkedIn, and fuck that. Fair, fair. I mean, look, it's it's first of all. 
at least so far, LinkedIn police will not show up at your house yet. And, and like, can you? Well, also, they would never be able to find it. I mean, that's like, <laughs> there's no way. But the, they are a bit Keystone cops, aren't they? Uh, it's just it's a, that's the problem with the thing. It's so easy to make fun of it because it actually sort of encapsulates all the tacky, exhausting parts about corporate life. Like, it's a really, it's like a. It's, it's a Dilbert cartoon turned into a software product. Yeah, it just represents <laughs> it. And the reality is, like, so was up, nice. up until about five, six years ago, so was Microsoft. Like Microsoft was just the archetypal like. Oh, but it is. Giant. It is. What are you talking about? It's better now. It so, really so is. So this is part it? of your piece on Medium was that actually Microsoft isn't as kind of like fuddy-duddy as we used to think of it as. I mean, I'm getting older. Microsoft's getting older. So there's a part of me too now that's just like, uh, I can see what they were trying to do back in 1999. And, you know, they, like, I'm, they were doing something really new with at an incredibly fast pace. And we're able to kind of look back and be like, oh, but the Mac was so much better. But, like, Microsoft was just, like, shoveling software into the universe and changing the way people compute. And it was a disaster and it was sprawling, but it was also very effective. So there's part of me that's, like, a little bit revisionist about the the sort of – Microsoft narrative of the 90s where we kind of all the good and virtuous nerds just hated them. Um, but there's another part that's like, no, they really are kind of more focused on design and product. Like they're, they open sourced a um, code editor. Uh, I think it's, it's not Visual Studio, but it's like, a, it's got like some little sub brand, but it, it is like, it's good. It's so good software. I, I use the um, Microsoft Outlook app on for iOS to check my Gmail account, and it's much better than the Gmail app. It's actually excellent. I use it as well. So it's, they're able to land good, high-quality software. They're actually big enough that they're able to communicate pretty clearly about things like privacy policy. And so, like, as far as the giant software entities have to go uh, or behave, they're pretty much comparable at this point to the Googles and the Apples. So you live with these giants. And, and yet, there's something incredibly dystopian about this acquisition, right? I mean, this is what your medium people Well, it's just about. too, you know, it's 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 like a, in a bad sci-fi film where like, you know, the giant, it's like in Return of the Jedi when the super Star Destroyer smashes into the, the Death Star under construction. You're like, yeah! <laughs> like, it's just, it's the grossest nerd satisfaction possible. Just like, <laughs> I didn't know those animals that large could mate. And then you're just... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I need to see it's like that slow Can we motion. Call on every week. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, but I mean, so you were talking about basically how this just gives, or you were writing about how this kind of gives Microsoft like surveillance power over the corporate world in a sense. Oh, know? this is so good for them. Yeah, yeah. Can, can you elaborate on that? I just like, well, sure. I yeah. mean, you got to think about it. Really, LinkedIn has an amazing database of. First of all, all of the giant, te- all of the tech giants have their special surveillance capabilities, right? Google knows what everybody's searching for. Amazon actually has an, a map of all global commerce. Plus, it has like still has um, sort of white labeled search products. It has AWS for um, hosting. Uh, that's their giant hosting platform that everybody. So all this bandwidth is running through Amazon. They're able to see the world. Um, and Microsoft is worried about le- getting left behind. It doesn't have a truly great like economic surveillance engine. At this stage, it's not looking at human beings, right? It's looking <laughs> at, at patterns. It, it's a company that's so big that we think about it because of its software because we use that. But it's thinking five, ten years ahead. Like, where will the global advertising market be in 2035? Is it the same reasoning that Yahoo bought Tumblr? No, Yahoo. <sighs> yeah, let, let's let's not even go there. <laughs> well, I mean, but it was like, oh, we, now we have all these p- this customer list. I yeah, think. but I think I think I think the the idea here, the thing which really scares me, the sort of dystopian vision, is this idea that what's happened is that Microsoft Office and the the Microsoft tools that we all have to use when we go into an office because they're pre-installed on our computers. Um, is has now transformed itself from being a piece of software that lives on your computer to being a service that lives in the cloud. That's right. It's the Office 365. Right. Yeah. And and there is and so what and LinkedIn is also a service that lives in the cloud. And when you do things in software, what you're generally doing is working on documents which touch a bunch of people, both inside and outside your company. And so it's very natural to want to sort of layer in the LinkedIn graph and say, well, this person and this person and this person using their sort of authenticated LinkedIn credentials are going to be working on this document with me. 
And suddenly, like the whole Microsoft, you know, if you want to email someone, if you want to share documents with someone, if you want to work with something, you're using LinkedIn for that. And then LinkedIn, at that point, stops being something that you can opt out of. It stops being something you can delete. And it starts becoming as painful and compulsory as all of the other Microsoft products. Well, that's right. It's, it's you know, it's... It's authentication into Planet Microsoft, where we all have to participate if we're going to live in corporate in the you know global corporate system of whatever that we're. I mean, it's just like so already uh, the PowerPoint of some kind or some sort of deck leaked or, or semi leaked. Like I don't think it was a big. Semi-leaked. No, it was it was on the conference call. They yeah, and it was the most hilarious. So I need to. So we can't show the slide, which was the slide that everyone was laughing about because it was very visual. There's lots of like random lines not connecting things, and ma- which made no sense. But I can quote from Jeff Weiner, who's the CEO of LinkedIn. He announced this deal on LinkedIn, obviously, with a little letter to all of the LinkedIn employees. And he said that one of the reasons um, that he's doing this is, quote, realizing LinkedIn's full potential to truly change the world works by partnering with Microsoft to innovate on solutions within the, inter- within the enterprise that are ripest for disruption. Wow, he put them all those all those words in that one <laughs> sentence. Jesus Christ! I mean, what do they think of us when they write that? Like, I mean, it's because clearly what's <laughs> happening there is like, like hey, we're going to make so much money. Let's put these bad boys together. We can, we're going to know what everybody's doing. We're going to jam that into word, and we're going to just go. We're going to go straight to Money Town. And they're like, we have to actually. <laughs> no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We got to tell everybody that this is good news. And then it's like, how about we're going to we're going to pluck this ripe plum of disruption? I mean, it's just like, <laughs> what poor PR person had to re- revise that? like 58 times i mean what does it so i need to ask you because this is you know this you used to be in this world i'm what, in this world i'm always does, in this world what does innovate on solutions within the enterprise is that actual english or is it just is there any mean, <laughs> meaning there? I, I, you, know, I, I, you know how sad my life is that i'm just like sure they're going to innovate on solutions in the enterprise I'm like, yeah, of course <laughs> uh, yeah. so here's what's here's what they're talking about right like first of all they're actually not talking about it. they're just be, they're going like yeah we're going to do a bunch of stuff that's that's you know that stuff we do we're going to do so much more of that stuff and you just probably want to close your eyes because it's going to get grisly that's what they're actually saying there I mean they're going to go because what what are your surfaces here you've got over here on my on my right you've got LinkedIn and it's got information about what everybody's doing in their life and their job and their career and it has a portrait of the entire global economy especially at like the middle management layer. And on the left, you got Microsoft, which knows it now knows how many times you open up Microsoft Excel. It's actually the you know per day. It's actually the engine of communication and uh, and planning for the entire global economy, right? And so it's kind of like I mean, this is a real like Ghostbusters like you know keymaster gatekeeper moment. Like, what's going to happen when you get these guys together? And you know, it's going to be like a giant Stay Puft marshmallow man of a corporate synergy, <laughs> just like smashing through New York City. Coming, coming for you, coming for your Excel spreadsheets, and they already have on in that in that deck. They have uh, PowerPoints open, and and then there's like a LinkedIn box that pops up with people who can help you get your PowerPoint done, who are from your LinkedIn network. No, yeah, yeah, no, it's in there. It's it, and someone oh, I tweet wow. I tweeted out a screenshot of it, and somebody wrote back and was like, "Human Clippy," and that's <laughs> that's what it is. We're in that like it's like the like. Endgame task rabbit nightmare hellhole that we've all been worried about. Like they're going to basically make all of work into Uber with this bad boy. It's going to be great. Awesome. Okay, we are going to. Wow. We on, on which note? Holy crap! I want to talk about. <laughs> I want to talk about the the money side of yeah. this because this is even more interesting. Stay that marshmallow. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So, okay. So the, yeah. So, so the, the corporate synergy thing is terrifying. Um, the money side of it, this thing 
um, there's a bunch of aspects to this, but the headline aspects of this is $26 billion. But what, how much cash does Microsoft have? Well, that's a very interesting um, comparison. Microsoft has $100 billion in cash. Yeah, so, yeah Microsoft so, could buy four LinkedIn. So yeah. the next question is, how much of that $100 billion in cash is Microsoft using to pay for LinkedIn? Not, not a lot. The, the answer, answer is, is zero. The answer is zero. <laughs> oh, okay. Microsoft yeah. is actually uh, issuing debt to pay for this. It's issuing $26 billion in bonds. Now, I don't know how... Um, you know, how much interest rate it's going to have to pay on those bonds, probably quite low because it's Microsoft. But we're because still talking, you know, what, $700 million a year just in debt service to pay for the acquisition of LinkedIn. And LinkedIn, as far as I know, has never made a profit in its existence or not certainly not $700 million. Like this is, they're not doing this because LinkedIn is some kind of profitable thing which is going to be accretive to earnings. Well, no. I mean, well, they're, they're specifically, I think they're issuing debt because because their actual cash is being held offshore, and they don't want to pay the taxes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this, this is like a tax th- dodge. Th- this comes back to the combination of our like just fakakta, you know, corporate tax system combined with the fact that we give companies the ability to write off interest on debt. We, if they have to bring over money from overseas, we tax them on that, and so for repatriating, and so they don't want to do that. So what do you do if you don't want to repatriate your money? You go get a loan. And the nice thing about getting a loan to pay for a $26 billion acquisition is then the interest is tax deductible because for some reason we do that in this country. Just preferential and, tax treatment. And so we make it really easy to keep your money over overseas. In other words, <laughs> like, in other words, um, if you're Microsoft, and this is this is kind of crazy, um, the fact that you're having to spend $700 million a year in interest payments to the people who lent you the $26 billion to buy LinkedIn is not a bug. It's a feature. It means that you get to reduce your taxable income by $700 million and thereby pay fewer taxes. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're still you're still losing a little bit of money in interest, but it's, it certainly makes the deal more appealing. And when you're when money's, pra- I mean, I assume they're borrowing at such a low rate. It's got to be practically free right now, you know, given how when you're talking about a, a company with a hundred billion dollars total in cash, when rates are so low across the market. I mean, everything for a company that wants to keep it, it's it's like money clip overseas somewhere. The uh, circumstances are kind of perfect for that. So. Yeah, I mean, I haven't done the math to figure out like how high interest rates have to rise before. People stop doing this, but quite a bit, considering that the actual tax rate, if they bring it in onshore, is like thirty-five percent. Yeah, thirty-five percent. Yeah. So the the problem is that Microsoft is a global company, and so it has billions of dollars of income overseas, and it can't just give that money to its shareholders because then it needs to pay thirty-five percent tax on it. Yeah. So it, it's it's a big tax arbitrage, but the effect of this, I mean, we can talk about Microsoft and probably. Probably it makes sense for, for Microsoft. But the point is that every other company in the world is doing this. And it, we're artificially incentivizing the corporate sector in the United States to leverage up, to issue debt, even when they don't need to. And didn't we learn during the financial crisis that just issuing lots of debt because it's a good idea is not a story which ends well? Can I ask a dummies question? Yes. What happens with the $100 billion that's floating around? Where is that? It's not in checking. Yeah, it's basically it's, in it, checking. It, it is actually in American banks, ironically. Okay, so it's just sitting but in overseas. bank accounts? It's like, well, I mean, so obviously, uh, you know, you don't get FDIC insurance on $100 billion. Um, so a lot of it is in treasury bills. Uh, okay, so a lot just, of it is in very low interest um, debt securities. And then every so often, if you're Apple and you have even more cash overseas, you'll do something like, throw a billion dollars into Didi Chuxing, which is the the Chinese Uber competitor, just because you have this extra billion dollars lying around overseas and you've got nothing better to do with it. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, have, just... wait, I have a really, really dumb question. <laughs> <laughs> if, if it's time, if it's yeah, around no, for dumb it. questions. Um, I, I, I know this is going to be super dumb, but like, look, LinkedIn is publicly traded, right? So I, the, the, way, the shorthand is that the stockholders own the company. So what does it mean for – what happens actually with those stocks? Like what does it mean for another company to buy the company? What, what it means is if you have one share of LinkedIn, yes. then you, will, you are now going to no longer have that share of LinkedIn and instead you are going to get $196 in cash. 
oh, you're just going to get paid off. Yeah. Yeah, and you actually don't have. I thought it was going to convert to a Microsoft share or something. Like no, that. and you don't uh, really have if, any rights in a stock transaction. It converts to a Microsoft share, but in a cash transaction, you just get paid in cash. And you kind of can't refuse that, right? Because of your class of stock. If they do that, you're just like, okay. The board of directors has the right to sell the company, and the board of directors has unanimously agreed to sell the company. So that's what's going to happen. So when you buy a share of LinkedIn, or when you bought a share of LinkedIn, you were opting into that agreement. And you might, if you bought the share of LinkedIn six months ago. You could have bought that share of LinkedIn for $230, and now you're receiving less than that in cash, and so you're a little bit sad. You're like, uh, Okay, so now I want to yeah, – yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So let's talk about why now. Because like, the theory is that there's, there's a really good reason why this, this sale happened right now. And it's partly what you just mentioned, that stocks were actually much higher a year ago or six months ago. Well, LinkedIn stock in LinkedIn particular. stocks. LinkedIn stock lost literally 50% of its value overnight um, in February when an earnings report came out. And the earnings weren't particularly bad, but their guidance about the future, they were like, yeah, we're not going to make as much money as we thought we were going to make. And then just – the whole company just sold off. And that really mattered to LinkedIn for this weird reason, which is that most of their employees are being paid mostly in stocks. I mean, I don't want to exaggerate, but there's a lot of employees who are like, oh, give me a small salary, but give me lots of stocks. And so those people, and they're, they're especially the super smart people that have lots of job options because they're on LinkedIn, um, <laughs> <laughs> those people saw their value of the, this large part of their salary, uh, was, which, which is in stocks, that value going down by 50%. And they were like, fuck this, I'm going to get another job, possibly. Or if this keeps on happening, I'll get another job. So everybody at LinkedIn was like shitting their pants. When they I, were looking to sell, right, they'd gone to Salesforce. And Salesforce was going to buy LinkedIn, and then then their bankers went to Microsoft and said, "Hey, uh, and then there was a sort of bidding war." Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that that happens with all of these. Like it's, and but, it's but one it, of the ways it is the tech true com- that when you when you know certain tech companies, LinkedIn is one of them, and Twitter is is by far the worst. Um, just shovel equity out the door to their employees. The the cost of stock-based compensation at Twitter and LinkedIn is absolutely astronomical. And Let's try seeing that chart. Like, it's yeah. way over on the right, and everybody else is just sort of back, like, in the first quadrant. Yeah, if, if you work for a normal company, people will be like, you get to participate in the stockholding plan so where we'll give you a little thing. I actually have a number here. There's, that LinkedIn paid $510 million in stock-based compensation stock-based compensation last year, which isn't that much compared to the Microsoft um, debt payments. But it is 96% of their operating income So, and also 16% of their revenue. That's way more than most like Apple and Google. They also pay stock-based compensation, but not at that level. Do we know why they are so into that? Why stock-based compensation is something like why those two companies in particular? Well, I mean, it's it's popular – um, in places like Amazon and Twitter and LinkedIn, because they, because it means you don't need to pay in cash, yeah. right? And it like a company can print stocks for free, yeah. And so it's it's effectively they feel like it's free now under generally accepted it's accounting it's, principles. It's not free, but they yeah. but Silicon Valley has kind of trained Wall Street to ignore gap. Principles. I was going to say when their earnings come out, you always see the two, and they always put the non gap first as if that's like they're real. They're pointing the at the better number, yeah. basically. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's like a leveraging up. They're like, oh, we can get better people if we, you know, we don't have to pay them more, but we just offer them more stocks. But you're absolutely right, Kathy, that this is something which works until it doesn't, and when your stock stops going up and your stock starts going down, then you wind up in this kind of death spiral because what happens is the the employees don't really care what the um, stock price is. What they care about is how much money it's worth. And so if your stock price goes down, you need to give them twice as much, you know, goes down by 50%. You need to give them twice as much stock in order for that you know, for their income to stay um, flat. And so in so what happens is as the stock price goes down, you wind up shoveling more and more and more stock at them in order for their income to stay flat, um, which just dilutes the amount of stock outstanding even further. So that drives the stock price down even further. So you, you wind up printing even more stock, and then you get into this um, vicious cycle. And if you don't do that, then all the best people in your company leave. So that's also a, like the brain drain problem. 
which they don't want. Or you just go and mate with Microsoft. But the other thing is, is the funny thing is, like, usually when you mate with Microsoft, usually, which I do usually. all the time. <laughs> Every time like, I open Word. I was going to say, that's how. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I call clicking on an icon. Like most, <laughs> wouldn't most people quit anyway? I don't know. I, mean, oh, I feel no, like the brain drain no. is real. No, I think that the message around – so first of all, you went and worked for LinkedIn. So it's not like you went and worked for <laughs> – No, but seriously, like – you went and worked for the place that said, we're going to build a giant enterprise-grade social network that changes the way people work. Like, you didn't go work for, like, um, you know, we're going to connect all human beings and make families stronger. Like, whatever the mission – if you go and see the mission statement, like, the mission statement for Pinterest is going to be a lot more attractive. It's going to be, like, we're going to change the nature of the visual world or something like that. And you go to LinkedIn and it's just, like, we're going to slowly extinguish the tire fire we created. Like, that's, that's the – so – um, <laughs> Corporate drones done well. Right. So Microsoft, if I'm at LinkedIn, and I, I've met a couple people, know a couple people at LinkedIn. Hi. And they um, – <laughs> this will be yet more emails in my inbox. But the uh, uh, the general sense is like, oh, my God. What am I – what have I beholden? You know, and just like it, – it, it, it's a fascinating place to work. It's a giant platform. You're doing big things at scale. But at the same time, you're like, what's happening? Um and uh, which I think is any big enterprise that's under a lot of change. Like I actually don't think LinkedIn's particularly worse or, or better than any company that's in its situation. Microsoft is a very well-run professional company. You go in there in a, at, a, at a high level and they have great executive assistance. Your travel's taken care of. They'll do your laundry. Like it works really, really well for the people who work there. When they leave, they, they go out into the world and then they're like, wow, I miss it. Like, it is a very nurturing, caring environment. You have to totally believe in Microsoft to be there. Like, you have to actually get into the cult. But when they're paying you really well, it's pretty good. And I want to talk just very briefly about this cult because one of the things which surprised me and probably shouldn't have surprised me about the success of LinkedIn was that they created these blog posts from, you know, CEOs which were written by – some robot somewhere, um, you know, where you'd get Richard <laughs> Branson robot, talking about a sad human. That's why. Sad I, that's another reason I quit. And and so bad. and and basically, what they found was that there was an insane appetite to read utter management blather about you know mm. disrupting solutions in the enterprise. And <laughs> but who is reading that? Not humans, like other people who are also writing that blather. Like people yeah, are reading there, that. There, no, there's people a, are reading There's a large – that's called millions that's every marketing No, but that's the thing. Like on LinkedIn, they're reading it, but not people. Like not – like I mean <laughs> like not like – like no one is sitting there going like, oh, I'm going to take the bus. Maybe get a cup of coffee and better read that LinkedIn unless there's someone who's also like, I'm going to write. So like I, I got to tell you, I worked for a, a brief period in the marketing department of a law firm. So we're talking like middle management of like a despised corner of a mid-sized law firm, right? Okay. And I'm still connected to someone those people on LinkedIn and some of them really sincerely share that blather. It's like, it's not like, and I see their smiling face pop up when they share it. And partly it's because they're looking for something to share on LinkedIn so that then people will come to them and maybe headhunt them to their next middle. I feel that's the tricky thing with LinkedIn is it's actually sort of hermetically sealed from what we would consider reality, right? Like it, it, it's like there's no bad news getting in on this. The, it's always like the 12 most inspirational marketing strategies you can use to communicate with your LinkedIn community. Like it's all like it's self-referential stuff. That it's points, like amazing philosophical solipsism. Like, yeah, it just, it, it's can you, can you create – I think for some people it's their job. They get up in the morning and they're like, OK, I need to strengthen my connections across the LinkedIn network. And it's also performative yeah. in the way that like people aren't sharing the stuff that they actually believe in, but they're sharing the stuff that they think is going to make them look good. Yeah, that's right. Mean, let's employees. bring that up because like my theory is that people really only perform on LinkedIn – unless they're being actually being paid directly for it when they want to get a job. So then it comes up with this question like people like corporate corporate environments that use Microsoft products are they really going to want all their like employees to be linked in at all times? Because that would that would bring on the headhunters, wouldn't it? Like, wouldn't they be losing employees by this connection? Yeah, but they are everybody's already dealing with that. Like and and I mean everybody already like people are watching LinkedIn now to see how their employees are doing and what when you know you have to be careful about one of the things I always advise people to do is if you're going to update your um, profile is uh, 
friend your boss at that time. Be like, oh, hey, just getting everything all like buttoned up, <laughs> right? Like or you've just ruined that strategy. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, there are other strategies, but the uh, no, I mean that's. We live in this world of constant perpetual mutual spying. Like if you really – if I really – I have a company with myself and my co-founder. We have around 40 people. I don't go look at their profiles. It's, it's up to them. Like you just – what am I going to do? I'm not going to spy on my people. I have to – like that's just bad management. No, you're, you're, you you hire someone to do that for you. Well, that's the thing. Micro, well, that is actually the thing that's going to be amazing is Microsoft's going to have that as a service. Like indirectly, you're going to get – it'll be like, oh, you know, you're going to be able to see aggregate snapshots of your own employees, I think, with this tool. And there, there are other things that let like you do report, that. Like a report, like a daily dashboard. Yeah. Like, which of great. your employees is, is like trying to fly the coop? But actually what's more interesting is the competitive. Like I want to know – if I'm Microsoft, I want to know what is Google doing? Um, what are – like the thing that I was, I was thinking about is like the Google – Employ- like Google employees can go home and open up their Xboxes, right? I'm going to have a unified login across all of Microsoft. I'm going to know like, hey, the- that team at Google is like kind of getting lazy. They're going home at 6 p.m. It's poaching time. Let's go in there, right? Like you're- because I own Xbox. I know when people are opening things. I know whose boss just got promoted. I know all that stuff about uh, my competitors, about Paul, Facebook. Paul, you're, you're- – you're scaring me. Okay. But this is how internet advertising works now. Like, We're also just, just like how like HR departments are slowly but surely yeah. becoming the most evil corner of corporate America, if they weren't already. Oh. already troll people on social media. I mean, this is just making it easier. Yeah. I just we're all going to get to spy on each other all the time. It's just this nice big mutual panopticon where you thought you were doing word processing and it turns out <laughs> that you're like you were writing a letter to your sister but then she pops up in the window right there and you're like, "Oh, but she doesn't even know you're looking at her." And then you're like, "What what's she doing?" And she's baking that cake wrong. And then you know, it's just it's going to be great. We're going to have so much fun. Okay. Swimsuit, check. Sunscreen, check. Phone charger, check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Okay, so... The, the final segment is about insider trading because it's – if you buy Snapchat or um, WhatsApp or any of these other social networks, you just pay a bunch of money and you buy them and that's the end of the story. But with LinkedIn, it's a bit more complicated because as Kathy said, LinkedIn was a public company and there were millions of people who owned LinkedIn stock. And if the news leaks – then what you can do is you can go out into the market and buy the stock and make money because you know that Microsoft is going to pay much more than the market price. They, they ended the up paying like it jumped up 40% or something? Yeah. So you could just make 40% return in like two days. You could make much more than that because there are these wonderful things called call options. Mm-hmm. So, so what you do if you really want to make money is you buy – okay, brace yourselves. I'm going to go super financial jargon here – short-dated, out-of-the-money call options. Yeah. Which means that if Microsoft, if, if LinkedIn is trading at $130 a share, what you do is you buy the right to buy stock in like a week's time at $160 a share. And everyone's like, why on earth would you want to buy LinkedIn stock at $160 a share when it's trading at $130? I will, sh- I will sell you that um, for I will sell you a hundred six hundred options to do that, and it will cost you one hundred and thirty five thousand dollars, and that's just one hundred and thirty five thousand dollars, which is free money for me. And then what happens is Microsoft swoops in, um, the price goes up to two hundred dollars a share, and those options, which were only worth one hundred and thirty five thousand dollars, you know, yesterday, are today worth two million dollars, and you've just made one point nine million. So I mean, just to to be a little bit even nerdier. I mean, the, the point is that you're buying it from someone who has a sort of naive 
concept of what the likelihood is of the stock market the next few days, right? So they have this idea of a distribution of the likelihood of it being that high, and they're like, very unlikely, so I'm willing to sell you these call options for very cheap. So it was, it's not that those call options were actually priced correctly, right? They they just didn't know it. You just well, talk, you had more information than the person you bought it from. They, were pri- they may have been priced correctly. But so we're talking about this because Fortune went and took a look at the uh, – kind of movement in the options market right before this sale. And they noticed, lo and behold, there was a big spike in options trading the Friday before the deal. Um, and so there's... And, and not just on the Friday, but like in the last five minutes of yeah, trade. exactly. And so they were saying, mm, this looks like maybe there's some insider trading since these short-dated out-of-the-money call options are kind of like the signature tool that people use to... Yeah, it's really yeah. easy to find out yeah. that this happened, but, right? So here's what's interesting. Some academics have looked at this subject, right, specifically looking at, at the, these securities at, or at these derivatives, these call options. And this kind of activity happens about 25% of the time on, like, big acquisitions um, or, like, the kind of stuff that Fortune was seeing. Like, and it, sometimes it's happening weeks before. It's not happening, like, on the weekend before necessarily. Um, and so that kind of suggests one of two things. Either there is, in fact, just like a ton of insider trading that's happening constantly and not getting tr- caught, or, and this is Matt, our favorite guy on Bloomberg, Matt Levine's theory, is that before deals leak, not necessarily information that would count as insider trading gets out, but there are signals that kind of start to filter in the market and cause some instability. And maybe that's why you constantly see this volatility right around the time. Like signals as in you see people going into meeting rooms? There, uh, well, that would be one thing, but I mean, that would that would be so. This is like trading. This yeah. is like Jungian economics. This is just like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. like the, some sort of weird synchronicity occurs. Like you're just like the back of your neck. So, so the, I mean, I think I think the you know um, Occam's razor basically tells us that the obvious explanation is the true one, and that there were hundreds of people who knew about this deal, and that somehow. You know, it's very unlikely that that many people can keep a secret for that long. This deal took a very long time to put together. And someone found out about the deal and they got greedy and they bought a bunch of options in order to make lots of money. But they're going to get caught. Okay, so this is the interesting thing. Um, It's very easy for the SEC to – and whenever one of these deals happen, they do this, um, they'll look at the options trading and they'll look at who bought the options and then they will try and sort of trace back some connection from that person to the deal. And if they can work out that that person received inside information, then they can prosecute them. Um, but there are interesting ways in which the uh, you can get away with this. Mm-hmm. Um, one is that you say that you weren't insider trading, you were doing um, some clever option strategy. So, for instance, there was activity in the the $160 calls. There was also activity, strange activity, in the $175 calls where there was this thing called the iron condor where at the same time... Stop there. Stop there. I I just want to like go... Oh, yeah. No, I mean, really, is anything you're going to say now going to add to that? (laughs) So the iron condor is a relatively common options trading strategy where you buy um, out-of-the-money call options and and buy out-of-the-money put options at the same time. So you buy the right to sell at a price much lower than the current price. And what you're doing is essentially betting on volatility in the stock. Um, and if you're saying – if you can go up to the SEC and say, well, I was just betting on volatility. I didn't know that a thing was coming. And they, again, they can't prove that you got the information somewhere. It's hard it's, – it's more plausible that this is a real trade. But the thing which I want to talk about is that let's say that I, Felix, am you know, coming up in the elevator at Metrotech in Brooklyn and I overhear two guys in the – elevator and they work for some law firm and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm working on that deal where Microsoft is buying LinkedIn, which is something, of course, which they shouldn't say. But it's not illegal for them to say that in an elevator. It's just really stupid. <laughs> um, if I overhear them saying that in the, in the elevator and I have no idea who they are and I've never met them before and I will never meet, meet them again and I just call up my broker and say, load up on short-dated out-of-the-money call options, that's 
totally legal. I have not broken the law. You just give me a new fun game to play whenever I'm in an elevator. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to just talk to whoever I'm with. I'm like, you know, I've been working on that deal where wasn't it like fairly recent too that like the, the decision in the courts was that you had to have like some certainty that the information you're getting was coming from a source that would know that like as long as some plausible, right. <laughs> plausible deniability on your part that these people, your, your source of information was actually informed, you're pretty much good. I mean, I guess that's my, the point is that you if, if you don't know whether that person was was joking or just making shit up then like yeah you, it is the risk you're, you're you can take kind of your own it, risk yeah. you know and, and and mostly under insider trading there needs to be some kind of quid pro quo the um that the person res- receiving the tip needs to be doing something or paying something to the person giving yeah, the kickback. tip so if you're giving that guy $60,000 in a Ferragamo bag <laughs> then that's insider trading you know it just it just all feels like weird house rules in the world's dumbest casino. Like it just it's just <laughs> like at this point it's like ah, just give up. Just like just let raw naked capitalism win rather than what are you going to do? Just come up with more rules. There, about the there is there is actually a relatively compelling libertarian case for making all insider trading legal and and just saying have let the market have at it. And, all right, just get know. on your offshore seasteading like. <laughs> Trading desk. And, Please, yeah. seasteading is the key. Right? That is exactly it. Like right off of Governor's Island, so you're close to the markets. Just to, yeah, just it's going to be great. Let's do this. There's this. Why are we the, doing podcasts? The SEC is built on this idea that there's a level playing field in the stock market, and everyone has the same information at the same time. Everybody knows that this is a fiction. So why not just embrace the fiction? This is the same argument as saying that all of the athletes at the Olympics should be allowed to dope. Because you know, why not just embrace the fact that it's going to happen anyway? That's bad. That's you're right. Then we then it's no longer a really fun competition that we all get to watch and pretend is fair. Right. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. that. That's yeah, too bad. We are bad. so cynical. Today. I'm very cynical. Gosh. I probably brought it down. I'm a little. Um. Yeah. Anyway. Never mind. Okay. I I feel like that's a natural end to the cynical Microsoft, LinkedIn, um, horrible garbage fire of a merger. Let's wish those two kids great, great futures together. I mean, I think it's, you know, Microsoft, <laughs> LinkedIn. I'm still imagining them some sort of like mid-air mating thing. Well, that's that the you thing. Your ta- clouds merging is the new form of intercourse for giant companies. Oh, I need to ask to, Paul uh, Ford, yeah. um, just because we have Paul Ford in, in, and this is a rare and special thing. People love to talk about the cloud. Is yes. there any difference between the cloud and the internet? Um, (laughs) Yes. The internet refers to a collection of hardware that's all talking the same protocol or language and exchanging information along those different protocols using a set of rules. So, like, the internet works – Port 80 on a computer, like like a port that a ship sails into, is the the official port of HTTP, and that's how the web works on the internet based on top of the TCP IP protocol. Like it's just stacks of things. The cloud refers to somebody else's computer times a billion. Like the cloud is we set up a whole bunch of computers in a giant data center in what used to be an aluminum smelting town, and, and now we're using that the electricity produced by the dam to power these machines. Well, when you have a million computers together, you have it's a very different problem than having two computers. You need to figure out how to coordinate them, how to if, how to track if one goes down, and then you can start to cut them up, lease and sell services. Um, you know, they become a commodity essentially. And so, what the cloud is is uh, a set of commodities that get produced by having a ton of computers in one big area or multiple big areas spread spread all over. So. What's what instead of buying one big mainframe and doing all your computing there, now you go to Amazon who had surplus capacity and set up a thing called Amazon Web Services where you could kind of rent access to all their tools, which already involve thousands and thousands of computers to do all the things that Amazon does. And you can now go and I can get you I can get you five hundred computers running at once and we can use those as one sort of virtual mega web server because you have a billion people coming to look at something, like if you're a Netflix. Okay. So, I mean, I don't want to disappear down this rabbit hole too much, but does it make sense, you know, like does my – if I visit Facebook, Mm -hmm. 
Is that a website or am I like pulling information from the cloud? Is there no distinction there? Both. It's both. You are it's going – you are – accessing fa- a, a set of services across multiple computers. That's, that's actually how ad networks work. Like if you go to the Times, you're actually hitting like the New York Times. You're hitting like 80 separate computers as all the ads show up and the images are over here on this computer and the, the homepage is over here on this. So basically, no, I mean Facebook has – is so big that it cuts everything up into little tiny pieces. There's the machines that do Messenger and let you do the chat, and then there's the machines that do um, the wall, and there's lots of them together all in, in concert because you literally can't build a, one computer big enough to do all that work, so they had to figure out how to split it up. Yep. So the and, Facebook has a cloud is another way of saying it. Yeah, so, Facebook uh, so, so, and, and And Microsoft LinkedIn is just, it's just when clouds meet. It is. It, this is a giant – so you're going to go – and what Microsoft is doing is moving all their applications and software software into the, into the cloud. Now, you still download it and run it locally on your machine uh, unless you use the web versions. And the same is also, you know, Adobe's doing that too. Like you now buy Photoshop and all the related things by uh, by downloading them from, and they, they update and they're sort oh, of managed. To, talking of, and we should, we should allow um, you to, to plug your amazing recent podcast with Koi Vin, who now works for Adobe. That's correct. Felix is referring to uh, Track Changes, which is the name of my uh company Postlight. We do a uh, corporate newsletter and a corporate podcast, very, very corporate in every possible way, as corporate <laughs> as can be. And so we uh, we encourage people to listen to that. You can find it in all the regular places. Just search Track Changes, Track Changes Postlight. Your podcast should start inviting people to connect on LinkedIn just to be a little bit more corporate. We actually did do a LinkedIn episode that was just myself and my business partner, Richard Ziade, just kind of inchoately screaming for about 35 <laughs> minutes. Just like, what the rana? It's just yelling, upset. Yeah, angry. It's it's a common reaction to LinkedIn. Okay, that that's it for LinkedIn. But we do have a numbers round. Hi, I'm Francis Fry, and I'm Ann Morris, and we are the hosts of a new TED podcast called Fixable. We've helped leaders at some of the world's most competitive companies solve all kinds of problems. On our show, we'll pull back the curtain and give you the type of honest, unfiltered advice we usually reserve for top executives. Maybe you have a coworker with boundary issues, or you want to know how to inspire and motivate your team. Give us a call, and we'll help you solve the problems you're stuck on. Find Fixable wherever you listen. I have a very happy, non-cynical number today, which is 91. Okay. 91, which is, first of all, my favorite number because it's the first number that looks prime but isn't. Just think about that. But it's also really important this week because it's the number of emails we got from our listeners. Ooh. Remember last week we asked uh, people if they knew what Rikers Island was and what Ferragamo brand was? Bags. Bags or shoes. Ties. well, ninety-one people like wrote in, and I was like, all weekend and all week, I kept on thinking I had way more friends than I actually do because <laughs> email, you've got a new email, you've got a new email, yeah, you got another email, and I was like, oh my god, all the, all these people, and I'm I'm gonna just assume they are my friends, but anyway, ninety-one of them wrote in, and um, for the most part, they almost they they knew both. But of the people that only knew one, I think almost almost all of them only knew Mar- Rikers Island, and it's because. Uh, of the Law and Order, of yeah. course. Law and Order. It's because fam- of the TV. Yes, yes, the TV. Yeah. So thank you guys for writing in. You guys are amazing. Um, and and on the subject of writing in, um, I have another request because I love because obviously asking people to write to us is a good thing that we should do. Slate money at slate dot com. What I want to know this week, please, this would be super super helpful. Um, is what are your favorite podcasts? Just that. Like, what do you listen to? Do you listen to track changes? Do you do you listen to things which aren't track changes? Which apparently there are other podcasts which aren't track changes. I, ours is pretty great, actually, for for where we're. You know, we're just a company, but um, we're doing real good. But yeah, so just let <laughs> us know. Let us know what you listen to because um, it's actually very hard for people sitting in podcasting studios to know that much about their audience. And we want to know, like, what do you like out there? Because mostly just because we want to listen to it, but. Um, let us know. Uh, Paul, what's your number? 
I no one told me I had a number. Now I'm sitting here trying to figure out the factors on 91, and I, I really was going to. I was going to. I was going to come like she, like Kathy. Paul, just, what are the factors of 91? I, I don't know that either. Like Kathy think broke my it. brain completely. Think about it, Paul. What right, are the factors? Me, no, me, you're not allowed to get your phone out. We're coming back to you. We're coming back to. We're coming back to Paul while while he's managed to work out the prime factors of 91. Um, my number is two million dollars. Um, two million dollars. Uh, is this is related to a Senate investigation. Senator Grassley just finished up a 300-page Senate investigation of the American Red Cross, my favorite. I love to hate the American Red Cross. So the American Red Cross raised a whole bunch of money for Haiti, and no one knows where it went, and they were dissembling and lying to the Senate. And one of the things that they spent money on was that they gave $4.3 million to the International Federation of the Red Cross, which is the sort of international sister organization, which then sort of peeled off its own administrative costs and gave the rest to disaster preparedness work in Haiti. Yeah. So that's okay. Like the International Federation of the Red Cross, I don't hate those people. They're actually an okay charity. And if you want to give them $4.3 million for Haiti, that's okay. The American Red Cross, however, also charged um, money to manage giving the $4.3 million to their sister, right? Because you can't just write a check for $4.3 million. You need to sort of manage the writing of the check. How much did they charge for managing writing a $4.3 million check? Uh, $2 million. That's messed up. Uh, (laughs) That's crazy. (sighs) Yeah. Uh, Bring us back from the edge, Jordan. So my my number's an update. Um, my number's ninety million, which is the uh, bid from the publisher Ziff Davis for Gawker uh, Gawker Media. Uh, we've obviously talked about the Peter Thiel uh, campaign of destruction, uh, total war, salting of the fields against all of Nick Denton's uh, you know family and holdings, and of course Gawker itself. Um, so Gawker went into bankruptcy uh, in order to essentially prepare to sell itself off in a way that, you know, they could because outside of bankruptcy, that'd be practically impossible. Um, and they are starting off with this opening bid from a company that is right now known for basically publishing PC magazine. And so that leaves open a lot of questions about what the future of Gawker is going to be exactly. Although they've said they want to keep on or they this particular opening bid does include a deal to keep on Denton as a consultant for two years. But, he, but even so, that's only two years long term. It, it does kind of make you wonder what their plans are for this kind of, you know, not very PC magazine-esque media company. All right, Paul, what are the prime factors of 91? I have two numbers now. Well, actually three because there's two. Uh, if you multiply 13 and 7, you get 19. Ah, 13 and 7. I, was, I kept thinking 17. I got in trouble there. Anyway, they, <laughs> I have a really great number for everyone. It's from Microsoft's website, and it tells us that it's the number is 984,000. Ready? It's the number of orders of French fries that Microsoft employees in Redmond, Washington, eat at the campus cafeteria. <laughs> so that's the kind of data that you can look forward to seeing about everyone in per your life. Per what? Per year. I mean, let's assume. Let's assume it's not per day. <laughs> I mean, a lot of French fries. Yeah. So that's that's there. You go. Yeah. Actually, you're right. Well, they actually, didn't say how, the per. Yeah. Wait. How many how many employees do they have at that campus? Oh, who knows? Soon, probably. I don't know. Soon, you know, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be. An I'm never coming back yeah. on this podcast. <laughs> if Paul, you're gonna, Paul killed the numbers round. If you're going to just ask me, yeah, it's just if some, you know, if someone had warned me, I would have, I would have made something up. I can't up. believe we didn't warn you. It's <sighs> I, I just, I got an email that just said numbers at the bottom. I was yeah. just like, oh, that looks fun. That's I like a, that. Yeah. All right, all right. Just, but, but thirteen and seven are good numbers. Those are great. Yeah, I guess nine hundred eighty-four thousand. Not so good. <laughs> no, no, nine hundred eighty-four thousand. I feel like the fact that Microsoft measures that is actually. Actually, much more interesting than in the <laughs> well, actual I mean, they, number itself. They, I'm sure, like their point of POS system has to do that at the very least. But it just shows how excited they are about measuring things about people, and that's the, yeah. that's what, something we get to look forward that's to. Great. I Thank feel you. like if they were in Northern California, they wouldn't even have French fries. It would all be like healthy snacks. Should we get out of here before Ziff Davis buys this podcast? <laughs> Let's get out of here. Um, Paul Ford, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Slate Money. It was so much fun. And and I feel like 
I, you know, we will never live up to it anymore. Yeah, um, that's it. That was it. That was the greatest episode ever of Slate Money. You can all unsubscribe now. Um, <laughs> if you, if you, if you want to subscribe on the off chance that you might enjoy a future episode without Paul Ford, um, or on the even smaller chance that Paul Ford might accept an invite to come back some other time and you get to hear him again, um, you can find us by searching for Slate Money. Um, but do write to us and let us know what your favorite podcasts are. The address is slatemoney at slate.com. And yeah, all that leaves is for me to thank Audrey Quinn, the producer, the executive producers, Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers, tell you to check out all of the rest of the Panoply podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And we will talk to you next week in the special Brexit edition of Slate Money. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.